the locust? Is that a normal army? Is it the demons being released from the pit? Uh, then we looked at the king of the bottomless pit, and we tried to look at all three of those um, back and forth. But yet, what we know is that uh, it's going to be terrible on the world for this period, and that uh, the people are not even going to be able to to get out of it. Right? That uh, there are people be praying for death, but yet it won't happen. But in chapter nine, verse thirteen, it's probably. It, if you read a passage of scripture and you think this is heartbreaking, uh, this could probably be one of the most heartbreaking sections. Uh, when you look at what is going to be going on at this time. And uh, I told you last week that there is a lot of disagreements um, when we look at this. So, uh, for instance, if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, like I do, this uh, 200 million army is a demon. Uh, same. Uh, Locust, uh, we're looking at in the beginning. Uh, I have the Adrian Rogers uh, commentary on Revelation, and he views it as an earthly army. I have the commentary here, and it is back and forth, it's not sure. And then this commentary is, without a shadow of a doubt, the commentator says, has to be an earthly army. And so we're going to look at that uh, tonight and just kind of walk through this passage of scripture. Um, if you would there, we're going to read this and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 13 of Revelation chapter 9, it says, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great rivers Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the day and hour and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, blue and sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. <coughs> By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. Verse 19, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should go not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent twice, it says that back-to-back -back verses, of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So if you would pray with me. Father, tonight we know that it's your spirit that reveals your word to us. We cannot understand it on our own, Lord, only if you reveal it to us. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the truth of your word. And, Lord, we look for this to one day happen, Lord. I pray that everyone here tonight knows you and that, Lord, if this comes to pass while they are still alive, and I am still alive, that we will leave with you. But Lord, if there's anyone in this place tonight 
that doesn't know you and hears this, Lord, I pray that you would stir them up to be saved, that they might not live through the tribulation period, they might not suffer, but Lord, they might see your goodness and be saved. And so, Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for being here tonight. And if you're taking notes, as always, the answers are on the back. If you uh, uh, fall behind or just want to fill out early. But we're looking here first at the altar is a place of judgment and redemption. If you look here in verse 13, it says that the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And so if you think about this altar, we have to go back to where else in Scripture have we seen a golden altar? Well, we've seen it in Revelation. We see that it is a place where judgment is taken and thrown down to the earth. But we go even farther back into the book of Exodus. And I want to read this to you because we get the description of what the altar was in the Old Testament. And so looking in Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse 1, you shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of Hakea wood. A cube shall be its length and a cubit its width. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. And you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, and its horn with pure gold. And you shall make for it a molding of gold all around. Two gold rings you shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides, and they will be holders for the pole so which you bear to it. You shall make the poles of Achaia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. So this is very important. It goes on and then tells them what they're supposed to do, starting in verse 7. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamb. He shall burn incense on it, and when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strain incense on it, or a burnt offering, or grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generation. It is most holy to the Lord. I have a, a picture there of fairly close to the outline of what that would have looked like. And what we need to know is that this is very significant. This burning of incense was very important because it was used uh, to go before God as a sign of mercy. A, a side of God's desire for them to be holy. And it's very important because if you read Psalms 141 verse 2, which is not in your notes, David prayed, may my prayer be set before you like incense. And so it's this idea of the petition of God's people, the favor of God's people, uh, the mercy of God's people. But yet we also see from Revelation that this is not just a seat of mercy, but it is a seat of judgment. And I think it is important to recognize what is getting ready to take place here is that you either repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or judgment is coming. 
And so we see this, that Christ is truly the only hope that these individuals have, but also that we have. And so either you're going to be saved by him or you're going to be judged by him. You're going to be allowed to enter into heaven because of what he did for us on the cross by his sacrifice, or it will be what you reject and keeps you from entering into heaven. And so we just see right off here that everything that's going to go on is about Jesus and what he's done and the way that he is made. Because if you remember back in Revelation chapter eight, starting in verses three through five, then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense was the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then, then the angel took the censer, filled it with the fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And so we see that God hears the prayers of his people. He responds to the difficulties and challenges and persecutions that he has. And then in chapter nine, we see referring back to Exodus and what that meant, that it's all about him. And when you read through the book of Revelation, and especially in this chapter, because you've got horses and smoke and colors, that you, if you're not careful, you will chase every little detail of the book of Revelation down and you'll miss the point that it's all about Jesus. It's all about people coming to know him or rejecting him as their Lord and Savior. It happens in church today. We get focused on the little things, on the, on the details and get sidetracked and forget that it's really all about the gospel. It's all about taking the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, whether that is McLeansboro, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Los Angeles, whether it's Mexico, whether it's Africa, that we have to be about the mission that God gave us because it's either him or it's nothing, right? There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father except through the Son. And so we just see this here, that this judgment, whether it's salvation, it starts at the altar. It starts with who Jesus is and what he offers to us. And so when you read that and you look at that, the horns can symbolize power. Uh, they can symbolize judgment. The gold can symbolize purity. Uh, it can symbolize holiness. Um, but yet it's very important that when you see a reference like this, then where else is it in the scripture? And so we see that in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, we know um, if you've read the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, chapter 9, um, the altar of incense can also be seen as a picture of the intercession of Christ. Just as the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard was a type of Christ's death on our behalf, the altar of incense in the holy place was a Christ, a type of Christ's mediation on our behalf. The altar of incense was situated before the mercy seat of the ark, a picture of our advocate standing in the presence of the 
Father. And so we see that it's all about Jesus, what he did for us, what he does for us, and the simple truth that while we can do amazing things as a church and we can accomplish great things, that if the gospel is not the focus, none of it matters. If it's not about Jesus and what he's done for us, none of it matters. I am. Listen to a gentleman preach this week as I was in the car and he said, uh, God responds to needs. If you read through the New Testament, when there was a need, Jesus was at work. He would bypass sometimes the crowd that had questions and disagreements, but when the need was there, the power of God was on display. And he said, what the church needs to remember is that we need to get honest enough to admit that we have a need. We've got plenty of church junkies is how he described it. People that are there because they want to know what's going on. People that are there because they want to see what's going on. But if you really want to see God at work, you need some people who are honest enough to say, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need your power, your presence, your healing, your working, your saving. That's what the church needs to be about. Honest and open about the fact that none of this matters if Jesus isn't the one building it. None of it's going to last if it's not Jesus doing it. Right? It doesn't matter what it is. Whether it's good vacation Bible schools, good choirs, good sermons. And I think great of all of those. But if it's not him, it's just a production. If it's not him, it's just activity. And so when we start this section of this chapter of nine, and before we get ready to see all that's going to go on, it just starts off reminding us where the power is, where the authority is, and who it's all about. Questions? All right. The next two verses we see here, everything works according to God's plan. Look at verses 14 and 15. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, this is where it gets kind of tricky because the discussion is, are these the demons that are influencing the world leaders of the time? Are they then influencing them to bring the human armies against the people of God? And what we know is that if you look through this, what does the Bible talk about a demon influencing an earthly king? Well, there is a reference to that in Daniel chapter 10, and you have that there. Some scholars believe the four great empires that came out of this area of the world would have been represented by one of those, the, the Babylonian Empire, the uh, 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 Roman Empire, the Assyrian Empire, and the Persian Empire, that possibly each one of those empires in their brutality and in their evil uh, behavior was influenced by one of these four demons. Some people uh, view it as this could have been the birthplace of civilization. And so God, um, this is where he had bound these four specific demons. But in Daniel chapter 10, there's a reference to something like what we could see here. There's a lot of disagreements. 
But in Daniel chapter 10, and I want to read the whole section to you because I don't want to pick a verse here and pick a verse there. It says, suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. That is usually the pattern in scripture when God sends a messenger to a man. Not that they are walking arm in arm, but that there is a fear and humility from them. Verse 12, it says, Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. That's a pretty good sign for us as we seek the Lord and study his word, right? That we seek in our heart and humble ourselves. <clears throat> Lots of people love to know the things about God, but are they humble enough to take that? I have come because of your words. But listen to verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. And suddenly one having the likeness as the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have restrained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no restraint remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And so you have two situations here where could it be an earthly representation? I think it is very difficult. Or is he talking about spiritual warfare? When the angels of God are genuinely battling behind the scenes, the influence of Satan. Last week we talked that there were angels in the pit. There are angels at work on the earth and there are angels at war with the very kingdom of heaven. And so what does that mean? Could that be the case? Could it be the fact that he is talking about at this prince of Persia and that we know that the prince of Greece is going to come? And so could these four Demons that have influenced and caused such heartbreak be the ones that are being released. Some Bible scholars believe these are four faithful angels 
But I think that is a hard sell when you look at verse 14 and says, release the four angels who are bound, who are bound in this situation. So that word for bound is not found in scripture as meaning faithful angels, right? It is not referencing someone who is doing the will of God, being sent, but yet it is being contained for whatever reason. And so I believe, I think that the strongest interpretation, if you look with scripture interpreting scripture, that we see that there are demons who influence world leaders. There are demons who can possess, I think, if you look at the early New Testament, uh, world leaders to do the things of the kingdom of this world. And so if that is the case, God is unleashing the brutality of these four great empires, and we know that, on the world at one time. And now how that works, I don't understand it. I don't know it for sure. But yet we see here one statement that I really want you to, to focus in on, on verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared, not decided, prepared, for the hour and the day and the month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. That this was God's plan. That the world must be judged during this period of time. And these fallen angels, this was what they were to do. And that's why we know that even in the wickedness, even in the brokenness that God works, right? Even though we are fallen people, that sin affects us, that sin corrupts us, that God can work through us because he has a purpose and a plan. And so uh, that is just a really overwhelming thought when a third of mankind will be killed. Now we've been looking that there has been a lot of death already in some of the chapters before. So most Bible commentators would say that you're looking at 60% probably of the world's population that has died. And so uh, it's just a massive situation uh, that's been going on. Um, questions, thoughts? Well, a couple things that I would just say uh, about demons because we're wading into this kind of uh, situation. Uh, and some of it we looked last time, right? We looked last time in Jude chapter one, verse six. You don't have these, but you can write them down. That there are some who are bound with everlasting chains. If you remember in Ephesians 6, the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so in Daniel chapter 10, we just looked about how they will follow Satan as their leader. They'll do battle with the holy angels in attempt to thwart God's plan. But I do want to just say demons as spiritual beings have the ability to take possession of a physical body. We see that from the New Testament. Demonic possession when a person's body is completely controlled by a demon. 1 John 4, 4, if you want to write that down, I believe teaches that this cannot happen to a child of God since the Holy Spirit resides in the heart of the believer. Now, some people would disagree with that. That's okay. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, encountered many demons. Of course, none of them were a match for him. You can look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, Luke chapter 11, Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, 
And the verse in 29 of Matthew 8 is one that I really find very interesting. What do you want with us, son of God? The demon shouted. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? So the fallen angels know that their day of judgment is coming. They know that they are going to experience what is coming to them. We know if you want to go on with some more of these, you're welcome to look these up. Satan and his demons now look to destroy the work of God and deceive anyone they can. First Peter chapter five, verse eight. The Bible describes demons as evil spirits in Matthew 10. Unclean spirits in Mark chapter one. Lying spirits in first Kings chapter 22. The angels of Satan in Revelation chapter 12. Satan and his demons deceive the world, 2 Corinthians 4. They promote false doctrine, 1 Timothy chapter 4. They attack believers, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And wage war against the holy angels, Revelation 12, verses 4 through 9. So those are references to that situation. But GodQuestions.org is a wonderful Christian resource. If you ever have a question and you just type in, what does the Bible say about this? But I want to leave you with a paragraph that it says that I think are very, very, very good. The demons, fallen angels are enemies of God, but they are defeated enemies. Christ has disarmed the powers and authorities, and he has made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, verse 15. As we submit to God and resist the devil, we have nothing to fear. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. What does the Bible say? Submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee. flee. So I don't know all what the Bible says about demons. I can't answer every question for you, but I think that is a really kind of good overview of what is going on, how they are at work, and what we should believe about them. Questions, thoughts? And did you say, Brother Jack, that you don't believe that demons can possess a Christian? A Christian. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone want to pull, Dave, you got your phone open, 1 John 4 4? Or somebody that can flip to 1 John 4 4 real quick? You belong to God, my dear children. You already won a victory over these people because the spirit that lives in you is greater than the spirit that lives in you. Okay. So the spirit that lives in you is greater than what was it? That you live in the world. Those yeah. in the world. So I do not believe the Holy Spirit is giving ground to a fallen angel. So, so and, and likewise, you get the third third of the angels that are fallen. Mm -hmm. So I would assume that the ranks of angels, there's a mirror mm -hmm. for the, the good angels to the bad angels. Yeah. You know, and I think there's seven different rankings of angels. That sounds right. Yeah, I think we looked at that last week too about how we should think that the kingdom of darkness is just this chaotic free-for-all that there's order, even though it's chaos. But we looked at how the king of the demons from the abyss, right? Could that be Satan or is that another angel? Or just like Michael and the archangels and, you know, so I think that's very good. So that's well, I mean, even in the example of Daniel, you know, you mm -hmm. Michael, 
that's a tall thing, but I would say those. Absolutely. Uh, those angels that are geographically you know, like the ruler, mm -hmm. ruler or uh, principal, yeah. principal or ruler angel. Yeah, well, I think that's very, very much what we would see from scripture. People are demon possessed today. Do you think? Huh. Can they do? Are they cast out by anyone? Well, that is a that is a good question. Just lob that one up and watch it explode. Uh, yes, I think that you have two views on that. All right, one demon possessions when you read throughout the entirety of God's word were very rare outside of Jesus's earthly ministry. Some scholars believe that is because Satan was at work mightily knowing that Christ was at work to verify that Jesus is who he says he is, all right? And now Satan works behind the scenes. It's easier to lie to and trick and deceive than if your child was jumping in the fire, right? Like the young boy who kept throwing himself in the fire. That's one view, which I would probably lean closer to that than the exception the other end of that spectrum would be more in a charismatic church that believes that most problems or a lot of problems are demon-possessed, that you have men who still have the apostolic power and authority and still do the mass healings and the mass uh, delivery of demons and uh, you know all those other things. So you're going to see some ministries like Benny Hens, you're going to see some ministries like Rod Parsley, um, uh, some of those who are going to flip to the other side that says, absolutely, Satan is still at work the same way. We have the same apostolic power that the early church did. I think that's hard to, you know. So I think you're going to be in one of two camps, usually depending on what kind of church you go to, right? So do I think he can't do it? And it does happen? I think it absolutely can. Do I think that is the main way that Satan works in America? No, because he has tricked us just to not want to come to church. But places like Africa, uh, places like India, where you are seeing God at work in a powerful way. We're seeing whole towns come to Christ and, and witch doctors and things like that. I think it is much more possible to possibly see that there. And it could be here too. So, But I don't think you can say it doesn't happen. I don't think that at all. Wouldn't you think a lot of people that are demon-possessed would want to be demon-possessed or doing rituals that allow them to do that? Or, or well, from the New Testament, them? from the New Testament, when Jesus was involved, all the people that we see were healed, right? It's not like they had sought that out. It doesn't make the That's what I'm saying. I mean, do yeah. you think some people seek that out and may be possessed just because of the rituals and the things that they're in? I don't know how I can answer that honestly uh, scriptural wise what I do know is that if you if you give a, an open opportunity Satan is not going to miss it uh, I personally think that Christians and if this does not sit well with you I'm sorry I don't think Christians should use Ouija boards I don't think Christians should do horoscopes I don't think Christians should do care, care, care cards I'm thinking about all those desserts that had some kind of healthy aspect to it yeah, when I get home, I had banana, I had strawberry, and I had pineapple. That's all that I'm going to tell home. But uh, so, but I think that you know, I think that's where you get into when you read the book of Acts. Was that a season where the Spirit worked in that way? When the when the kingdom of Satan worked that way? 
Or should that be the norm, right? Should the norm be a church with tongue speaking and, and healings and, and all of that from Acts chapter 2 through, you know, the end of the book? Or was that for a season to establish the early church? I lean much more toward it was to establish the early church. But I also want to be very careful to say, if the Bible doesn't specifically say no, then the answer is maybe for me, right? Just like if the Bible says yes, I'm not going to say no. So I think you definitely bring demonic influences into your life, but I don't know how much, because that, I think that is taught in the scriptures, but possession, I don't, I don't know. I've seen some things that I thought would. It sure looks like it. I sure have. I think that we as God's people are always guided by two simple truths, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, right? The Spirit of God never contradicts the Word of God, right? We, we set that pattern. But we also have to understand that Satan is the great imitator, right? He is the father of lies. He's a murderer from the beginning. And so he is at work. And whatever he can do, that God has, like with Job, you can do anything except for touch his person. I think he does. And um, and so I, I don't know exactly really what I believe for sure, but I, I do know that Jesus is a name above all others. And so I am trying to submit myself to God and resist the devil in all situations. And so, but yeah. The, the biblical comparison always you see with the Banging in or can't go open or whatever. It's a big sideshow. And when Jesus performed an exorcism or the apostles did, you know, it was to give God glory, not mm -hmm. to claim glory for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you have two extremes, right? You have the group that is that like he just referenced that's out here. But I also believe you have so many Christians that are cold and dead and don't think God is doing anything. I mean if you don't believe in miracles, you just need to talk to, to Betty about Grayson. Right. You know, or the fact that Larry went from 100% to 0.01%. All right. Uh, two terrible situations that God has intervened in. All right. Um, wouldn't have chose either one of them, but yet the Lord has moved in a mighty way. Right. We can look at uh, at Jace when he was diagnosed with cancer. Nancy Edwards had a grandchild that had the exact same thing. Jace is, is he out there probably? Or, you know, Nancy's is in heaven. And so God worked and moved. And I believe that's because God's people humbled themselves and they prayed and they sought his face and they fasted. And I, I believe that. And so there's just these two extremes that you see Christians being pulled into the the craziness of the, the Benny Hinn movement and then this other cold, dead theology that is just as dangerous. I want to be right in the middle, right? I want to be led by the Spirit, used by the Spirit, uh, and, and that's what I want to be, and to watch God at work. Because I don't know if you know this, I really think sometimes as a church, we substitute the power of God for programs, right? We're not seeing people saved, but boy, we've got a good underwater basket weaving program, right? 
or, or we're not seeing marriages change, so, so come listen to this. But we should be a people that are looking for the power of God, doing things that only God gets the credit for. Uh, I, uh, I was asked to preach this week at church camp on he must increase, but I must decrease from John. And I said, I just want you to know that I don't preach one verse. I just don't do that. I'm not going to pick some verse out of camp and preach four encouraging sermons about that. What I am going to do is I'm going to start with the verses in front of it. And I'm going to go to the verses after it. And I'm just going to go verse by verse by verse by verse by verse. And someone said, you really think that's church camp material? I said, I don't care. That's just how we do it. Right? We're not picking a verse out for our benefit. And so it started... In, uh, I think it was verses 22 and 23 about how there was a dispute that arose. And I preached about how we all have problems. There's always going to be people opposing you. There's always going to be problems in your family. There's always going to be struggles and heartache and, and marriage problems for your parents. And that first night, people just looked at me like, there's not a kid at the altar. I mean, no, I mean, it was just like two songs and it was over. And uh, one of the persons says, I've been coming to camp a long time and I'm not sure what I just was a part of. I said, I'm going to trust the spirit, trust the word. The second night, it moves on down, and it talks about that they went to John the Baptist for advice. And so I preached on, when troubles fall upon your life, who do you seek? Do you seek the word of God? Do you seek the local youth group? Do you seek the word of God? Or do you run to the things of the world? And God began to just start to chip away at the hearts. So there's eight or nine kids at the altar, and, and there's some big things going on, like two kids that were struggling. But anyway, I, I won't go into detail, but anyway, so we went on the third night, and the third night was literally about why he must increase and I must decrease, and, and how John was saying it's about Jesus, and he goes on and lists why Jesus is superior. He came from heaven and this. And I said, Jesus is the answer, and, and all of this. And so then the third night, you had like a kid saved, and you had all first four. Then we got to the last night, and that took us to chapter four. And what is in chapter four of the book of John is the woman at the well. So Jesus, by John's account, is the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can change you. He's the only one that can heal you. He's the only one that can work in your life. And he puts it on display because John says he needed to go through this way. Why did he need to go there? Because the woman was going to be at the well. At an hour, she shouldn't have been at the well because no one would go to the well with her. And so she avoided it. And I preached on how you've had five husbands and this one's not your husband and how your sexual sin and all this stuff, you got to flee from it. And that night, after thinking, oh, this is going to be bad, there was like seven kids saved and they had like a two and a half hour altar call, which could be a little long for me. And I'm going, oh, how many times? You know, but anyway, you know, whew, you know, it was like 1030 at night. I'm going, I am tired but the lord was working and lives were being changed and kids were admitting things and and uh that you know anyway god broke loose why because the lord promised that his word never returns void but my prayer every night with the leaders was lord do not let this group of adults grieve the holy spirit and quench the holy spirit and i'm going to just make a statement and you can throw cake at me later I believe the reason we don't see more is because I believe there's sin in our life that is quenching what the Spirit is doing. I don't believe that those kids quench the Spirit. I believe it is when leaders have sin in their life. You look at the Old Testament, when the nation of Israel got in trouble, it's when their leaders, their priests, their, that's when it happened. And so anyway, 
I left that last morning with that one person that said that the first night. She goes, I didn't know where that was going to go, but I'm glad it went there. I went, whew, me and you both. <laughs> whew. Church camp is not my area. That's not my wheelhouse. Teens are not my, you know, that's just not for me. And so I preached the same way I did to the you as I did to them. And the Lord took care of it. And so that's what we should be looking for. The power of God in situations that only God gets the credit. All right. Only God gets the credit. Uh, questions, thoughts. I know I kind of got sidetracked there. One thing uh, about <clears throat> demon possession there's a strong correlation between uh, drug use and demon possession. Uh, I, I don't use drugs, I've never used drugs, but I've, I've read about it, mm -hmm. and it's such a it's such a huge problem. I mean, mm -hmm. we've got we got drugs coming to this country by the mm -hmm. not truckloads, boatloads, yeah. and the, the attraction for drugs. Uh, demonic and if you talk to or read uh, some people that have mm -hmm. had maybe had a drug problem and conquered it mm -hmm. they'll tell you uh, stories about demons mm -hmm. uh, things yeah. that they see when they're on a high mm -hmm. and so this thing about being demon possessed is is really real well, you also see that when, when here at the end of this chapter, when he starts talking about the list of sins that they won't repent of, sorceries is mentioned there. And you'll see, though, that that word is actually uh, the word we get pharmacy from. It's drugs. It's mind-altering drugs that lead to, uh, which we're going to look at that. So, yes, it very much even ties into this very chapter. Any others? We're going to try to run to the end because I got sidetracked there. All right. So verses 16 through 19 is everything has a purpose to accomplish. And so it talks about the army of the horsemen at 200 million. It talks about the different things about the horsemen. And so I'm not going to read all that just for the sake of time tonight. But the two different views. All right. The first view is the earthly army. All right. Some people reference that as not Exodus. It's Ezekiel. So if you take it there in your notes. Ezekiel, not Exodus, uh, 38 chapter 39 in his prophecy to the end times. But some people like to look to Revelation 16 and it talks about that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and it dried, the water dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world and gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. That is the overwhelming majority of commentators. But I do struggle with this because this isn't under this. It is ahead when we get into the bold judgments. And so I think we have to, to look at that and say, I mean, it, it makes sense. The Euphrates drying up, the two million Chinese army uh, coming across, um, uh, as uh, uh, someone told me tonight, um, that Napoleon said, Roger, you'll have to say it better. I'm not going to get in trouble this time by quoting you. 30 minutes ago, but I can't remember anything. He, he told me something. I said, I won't get you in trouble tonight. That Napoleon said, China was a sleeping giant, pity the generation that wakes her up. 
wakes her up. And so we know in the 70s that China's army uh, is over 200 million. So could that be them? Absolutely. Could it be a demonic army that is influenced by what we've been looking at? Absolutely. And so, uh, but MacArthur states this, and I wanted to quote it so that you could get it word for word and not for me. The problem with this, talking about being an earthly army, is its connection with the bowl judgments, which fit into the seventh trumpet and not the sixth. And it doesn't describe an army of 200 million anyway. It just says kings of the east. But they say it could be this same group. And we now know it is possible to dry up the Euphrates. I don't know if you've been reading about the Ataturk Dam. The Ataturk Dam is in Turkey. One man can walk in and push one button and dry up the Euphrates, basically taking it down to 75 from its fullness of 75% down to just 25% of its normal flood and do that rather simply. And so, then the second argument is, if you turn it over on the back, you say, can demons kill people? Because we looked at how they harassed people in the last 12 verses. And so this is another quote from John MacArthur. You say, can demons kill? Sure, people can kill and demons are supernatural. Remember the demon-possessed boy in the gospel account, what he did, kept doing to himself, throwing himself where? In the fire. And they do it. They kill people with fire, burning people to a crisp. They kill with smoke, suffocating people. You know, of course, that people in fires, as many who, many of those who die, as many die from smoke inhalation as die from flames. And sulfur gas asphyxiates them, the very gas of hell, the fire and fury of the smoke of that pit. It's really an absolutely frightening scene. So he views it as, no, it is a demon army that is used. Now, I think we also have to go back to when these boy threw himself in the fire that he didn't what? He didn't die. So I think that could be a stretch. But yet on the other hand, what you see is here when he's talking about the gases, some people have said, well, this is a certain kind of chemical warfare. And so people in the, in the early World War I days started to see these kind of things. And in World War II, chemical warfare, and they thought, this is it. Uh, some people view this as um, there in chapter 19, the power of the mouth and the tail could be missiles, uh, could be nuclear, it could be all of these things. And so um, really you have to be very careful on, on how you view it, but we just need to be focused on the fact that one third of the population will die. Verses uh, Matthew 17 there, verses 14 through 21, is talking about that story of the young boy who was throwing himself into the fire. And I shared that with you because we just talked about miracles and the power of God and all that. Because, right, the disciples couldn't what? Cure him. But it says, Jesus in verse 17, then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. This is one of my favorite part of it. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, 
Move from here to there, and it will be moved. And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. So some people say, if God doesn't work, it's because you're unbelief. And other people will say, well, no, God is in control. Nothing depends on you. But what Jesus says right here is the reason you couldn't is because of this. You, can't, you cannot spit it any other way. You cannot twist it any other way. And so some things, whether it's this demon possession or he's talking about miracles in general, sometimes can only be accomplished through what? Prayer and fasting. I have listened to hours of sermons about guys. That's not what it really means. I don't know how else you read it. I've heard other guys talk about how, see, everything that happens bad in your life is because you're unbelief. I don't believe that either. But what it says is, if we want to see God at work, we have to believe that he can. Not that he always will the way we want him to, but we must believe. Questions? All right. All right, we're going to finish up. And so the heartbreak that comes from pride. The heartbreak that comes from pride. And before we wade into this, I just want to say that all people struggle with pride. All people. You say, not me. You are not Moses. You're not the most humble man on the earth. You're not John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of woman, right? We all struggle with it. But what we see here in verses 20 and 21, look what it says there. But the rest of mankind, this is all the people who did not die, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hand, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thieves. And so just some verses I want to make sure that we look at. This identity of worshiping demons and idolatry is woven together. Because if there is no power behind an idol, it's just a chunk of wood. But if there is power behind a witch doctor, if there is power behind these things, it is what? It's Satan. It's demonic. And what we have done is we have allowed a generation of young people to watch every movie about the occult. Right? About things that are wicked and evil. And if it is not something that is not real, Right, you can pray to that fire extinguisher over all the time, right? That fire extinguisher might be holy to you. It's just a fire extinguisher, right? But there are some things that people dabble in that are not just objects. They are under the power and authority of Satan. And I, like I said, I'll just wade into it as always, right? It is impossible to parent God's way and to allow this stuff to go on. I don't care what it takes you removing from a kid. I don't, take, I don't care what it takes for you to talk to your kids about how they're raising their kids. But if it's not just something that is dead and unmovable, if there's any power behind it, it's demonic. And that's what the Bible teaches us here. It's woven together in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22. I'm not going to read it on because we're out of time. But you'll see here that it's either nothing or it's demonic. And so all of these world religions and these things that people are following after, if there's power in it, it's not of the Lord. 
So, you, so for instance, let's just take uh, the, the Mormon Church, right? Well, the Church of Jehovah uh, Witness that uh, has altered who Jesus is, right? If there is power in those churches, it's not of the Lord. Because if any man preach another gospel, the Bible says, let him be what? Accursed. And so it's not just they're a church like us. No, it is either the power of God on display or what? The power of Satan. If it's a cold, dead church where there's nothing going on and, and God has not worked, that it's a cult, then it's a, just a false idol. But never think the worship of something other than Jesus is not dangerous. And so questions, thoughts. Verse 22 in that chapter says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? If you want to bring the power of God against you, worship something other than Jesus. All right. The second thing it lists here is murders. They would not repent of their murders. And so we see in Revelation chapter 13, this almost same list, right? You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, right? Love does not harm to a neighbor, therefore love, I don't think that's right. Revelation 13, is that right? No, that's 1 Corinthians. Uh, see, I think it's 1 Corinthians. I think that's 1 Corinthians 13, maybe. Yeah, I think that's right. So anyway... I'm not fallible, or I'm not infallible, all right? Make lots of mistakes. But anyway, it talks there about that, right? The murder. What does the Bible talk about murder? That if you hate someone in your heart, it is? It's murder. And so what has happened is the world has fallen under this corruption. People are stealing, they're killing, they're murdering, they're worshiping false idols, and they won't stop. All right? Was it 1 Corinthians 13? Did anybody look it up to make sure? Huh? Yeah. Well, someone's going to have to Google that because it might be 2 Corinthians. It's somewhere in there. Copy and paste doesn't always work on my computer. So now you know I make mistakes. All right. I knew you didn't, didn't know that, but lots of them. All right. While you're looking that up, we're just going to run through it because we're out of time. Sorceries, as I mentioned earlier. That word for pharmacy. And it's bigger than just prescription drugs. I don't think there's a sin against taking a pain pill. Or, or a sin. What is it? Romans 13. See, it was an R. I always tell you, you need to look for someone better. But anyway. Look what it says here. These drugs were used to dull the senses to bring mind-altering experiences, and they were always attached to what? Look what it says there. Satanic worship. So very much what David was just saying. Whatever occult practices they used to get in deep to their witchcraft, that would then lead to drunkenness, drugs, seances, hypnotisms, incantations, mystic mantras, mantras, whatever induced their religious experiences. Cavortings with mediums, spirits, and the deception of Satan. They will not let go. This is going to be a time of great pagan worship. Mind-altering drug use. 
And so we even see some of that in our culture today, this, this desire. I cannot begin to tell you how many Christians under the age of 40 will say something like, well, I know it says no intoxicating drinks, but I just disagree about marijuana. And I'm like, and you know me, I'm just like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. All right? It's stupid. Well, the Bible doesn't say that you can't. No, come on. It's nonsense. You can go anywhere in the world today and you walk into Huck's, you walk into McDonald's, you walk into Food Park, and someone is smoking weed. All right? You can smell it everywhere. And I'm going to tell you, as long as I'm still here, you're going to hear that Christians shouldn't. All right? I don't care what Pritzker says or Biden says or I'm telling you, it is a gateway into allowing Satan to have control of your mind. Why? Because the Bible says that as a Christian, we are to bring how many thoughts into captivity? Under all thoughts, right? There's not a time when a Christian should say, I don't need to think. I don't need to, to focus. I just need to chill, right? I just need to space out. No, you are dabbling in things that are not of the Lord. Don't get into all this medical stuff. Don't, don't wait into that. I said what I said. That's what I mean, all right? So, yeah, all of it, yeah. It's just we're seeing the wickedness increase. Yeah, it goes on and says sexual immorality, right? And we see from 1 Corinthians 16, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside of his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so we're going to see just a continual uh, disregard for the things of God when it comes to sexual immorality. But we have to be very careful here, right? He is not saying that someone made a mistake and repented, right? The Bible says clearly that God forgives. Right? The Apostle Paul even said in 1 Corinthians 13, you are being too hard on Christians who have fallen into sin, who have asked forgiveness, and you won't forgive. Paul says you're doing more damage to that Christian than if they had never fallen in the first place. Right? He says you've got to welcome them back when they ask for forgiveness. When they turn from their sin, they are welcomed back into the body. But what he's talking about is habitual lifestyles. We see the beginning of this. Like I said, once again, I enjoy talking to you like this. The desire to have sex outside of marriage is a gateway to this. It is. I don't know if you've read the statistics about abstinence, but it is low. It is extremely low. Heartbreakingly low. And that should break our hearts. But did you know that couples who wait are twice as likely to stay together than couples who break that marriage vow before? Why? Because God blesses his word. Now, you can't really talk about this in church because almost everyone has a past. They've made mistakes. They've done things they shouldn't have. But listen, God forgives. And that's all there is to it. But on the flip side of that, when people are living in sexual sin, the church must 
Stop turning a blind eye.